I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 276 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Cadmus Herschel, a professor of philosophy who is also a practicing ceremonial magician. He is here to discuss the new edition of his book, True to the Earth, Pagan Political Theology, which was recently published by Gods and Radicals Press. Cadmus's work can also be found in the Fenris Wolf. He's been part of Fenris Wolf Volume 8, Volume 10, and Volume 11. As well, his work can be found as part of the Mega Golem. Links to all of these books can be found in the liner notes accompanying this episode, as well as at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. As usual, there's a video accompanying this discussion, which you can find at YouTube. Just search for Trapar Films YouTube page. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. You can support Rendering Unconscious Podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Huge, huge thank you to everyone in our Patreon community. Your support is hugely appreciated. Rendering Unconscious Podcast is a labor of love. I do everything myself, and I'm very grateful to all of you who support my work. If you'd like to sign up, you can sign up for as little as $2 a month at Rendering Unconscious's Patreon page. That's Vanessa23Carl. Patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. For those who prefer Substack, we've also started a Substack, which is similar. Vanessa23Carl at Substack.com. The Substack only gets the weekly Magic Monday posts, as well as newsletters and other things that go out to everyone, whereas Patreon has a lot more behind the scenes, always gets the posting notification about the podcast first, many works in progress updates, and things like that. Also, at the suggestion of a Rendering Unconscious listener, I have joined the Amazon Affiliates program, So if you are going to order a book that you hear about on Rendering Unconscious Podcast, why not go to the notes or the website where you can find a link that takes you to my Amazon affiliates page to purchase the book and it sends like 30 cents over to the podcast. Every little bit helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, reviewing books, especially books from independent presses and academic presses, is really helpful. It does make a difference on Amazon and other online retailers. So go ahead and write a review for any books that you read that you like or enjoy. Hi, Cadmus. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk about your book. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's wonderful to see you and to be here. Absolutely. I love this book. I think it's super important and I love reading it and I highly recommend it. And will you talk a little bit about it and why you wrote it in the first place? Yeah, for sure. Let me let me hold it up. 
this is the the second edition. So it's just been published in the second edition. It's been out uh, for a little bit before then. Um, but it's called True to the Earth, Pagan Political Theology. And the how, how to sort of start. The basic insight or the basic argument is this, that every society uh, goes through a period before they have writing. Right now, how writing gets spread throughout the world and so on and so forth is, is a messy, complicated story. But every society has an oral period, right? A period before they have writing. And uh, a lot of my work in philosophy, I'm a professor of philosophy, deals with the effect that writing had on human thought and human experience of the world. So once you have a culture that is fully immersed in literacy, in writing, it changes how we think and how we can think. So I was doing this kind of stuff before just to help me understand ancient philosophy, pre-Socratic philosophy, and to understand Plato and this kind of stuff. But I started to realize I'd already had a pre-established um, commitment to, to paganism, to polytheism. I'm a, a polytheist. Uh, and I started to realize that a lot of what, on a deep philosophical level, I identify as pagan or polytheist sort of worldview or insights, a lot of those things derive from the strata of society that is oral, right? From the way that we think naturally before we have writing sort of changing our way of experiencing the world and thinking. So the argument is that if you go back and you look at the oral sort of period in a society's history, you'll see the insights and the experiences that give rise to polytheism and paganism. So it was an attempt to understand polytheism from the viewpoint of oral societies uh, and then think through the implications of that. Because a lot of um, what we've lost, both with writing and also with the dominance of monotheistic thinking, because a lot, a lot of what I sort of look at is the way in which monotheism dominates our thinking, even when we're pagan or polytheist, right? We can have a very monotheist metaphysical view and still have multiple gods and things like this. So I'm trying to get back to the idea of a sort of polytheist metaphysics, a polytheist or a pagan sort of fundamental sort of philosophy uh, and, and what that means. So a lot of what I started seeing was that uh, when we transition into literacy and when we transition into monotheism, which happens a bit after, um, we lose a lot of these fundamental insights and in relations to the world around us. Uh, so that's sort of in a nutshell what the book is about. I think it's so true and it's so uh, important I feel like in these times because I think about all the time how much like our culture and worldview are so monotheist even if we're pagan or even if we're atheist or whatever like it's so dominant in just the way the culture thinks and the way we all look at things that I often think about like what was it like you know before this kind of thing or outside of this kind of thinking and I often think about like I don't see how capitalism would have evolved without it it feels like it's essential to have this kind of view of like this is the one true way and that automatically makes everything and everyone else lesser and then this idea that also that we're separate from the earth or like you know somehow better than the earth rather than like made of the yeah. earth 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if I can sort of make some of these points um, a little uh, uh, concrete, hopefully. I'm I'm a philosopher, so concrete is not always easy. Um, but yeah, absolutely, right. So w- one way to encapsulate what we inherit as sort of a unreflective monotheism. When I say like a monotheistic metaphysics, what do I mean? Well, key aspects of it are the idea that existence, let's say the universe or the cosmos, I prefer the term cosmos for various reasons, but let's say existence uh, can be in some sense totalized, right? In other words, we can understand it as all, let's say, made up of the same stuff, whatever that may be. So that's what I would call a fundamentally monotheistic idea, that everything is made out of the same stuff, right? We can reduce it to some basic components or basic principles, or the reverse, if we understand everything as coming from some given origin, right? The universe had one start, or the this sort of nature of the universe is one. If we think that we can reduce all of existence to one essence, one nature, one purpose, one cause, uh, if we think there are unified laws of nature. So this is the way in which you can be a hardcore sort of atheist, totally sort of scientific worldview as well, and still have what I would call a monotheistic metaphysics. If you think that reality is governed by a unified, consistent set of laws that are, at least hypothetically in the future, we may someday be able to understand this totality, then that's a fundamentally uh, monotheistic view. So my argument is that a, a sort of pluralistic, polytheist, the pagan view is that the universe is plural, is multiple, right? In other words, there are uh, multiple essences, there are multiple truths, and there are multiple origins, right? Uh, we will never come to the one final right picture of the universe because there are many multiple and sometimes conflicting, sometimes not truths about the universe. The universe itself, existence itself, is not consistent. I think that this is a fundamental insight of uh, uh, polytheism, right, and, and uh, uh, sort of paganism. And this grows out of uh, sort of oral ways of understanding and seeing life. So to make the transition to capitalism, this is why, why pagan political theology, where does the politics come from? Well, mainly because when you follow these things through, you see that our worldview, whatever worldview you have, has social political, and economic implications. And this was a a fight I had been fighting for a long time, because you find a lot of folks uh, who say things like, look, you know, like religion should have nothing to do with politics. And there's an argument for this, right? Mainly in terms of you shouldn't use religious justifications for political policies when you're talking at the level of what laws should be in place, what should we vote for, so on and so forth. But certainly your metaphysical views, your theological views, your religious views should inform how you feel about, let's say, the environment, right? How you're going to approach, uh, approach things like global climate change and so on. If, if your attitude towards those things is not informed by what you think is ultimately true and what the ultimate nature of reality is, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about metaphysics and theology, if, if your fundamental view about the nature of existence doesn't influence how you behave socially, how you behave politically, then it's not actually doing anything for you, right? So uh, part of the book is also to draw out the social implications of these views. And when we do that, so capitalism, 
you can look at sort of the uh, damaging aspects of a totally dominant capitalism, right? Part of what occurs is that, you know, I, I talked about a monotheistic metaphysics where everything is reducible, for example, to some uh, uh, one way of understanding things. We can understand this, for example, in the idea that, uh, and, and this is sort of very important for certain approaches to science, but the idea that everything can be uh, quantified, right? Everything can be measured in terms of numbers. Everything can be made mathematical. Now, it's one thing to say that everything can be made mathematical. It's another thing to say that everything can be made mathematical, and this is the ultimate nature of it, right? That this gets at the truth, right? So, for example, you know, I, I'm feeling love towards someone, right? This may be measurable in terms of some sort of uh, uh, events in the brain and chemical composition and so on and so forth. But to think that that mathematical breakdown of it actually captures the full essence and meaning of love is to miss something fairly fundamental, right? So we can say, look, there's a mathematical approach for sure, just like there's a neurophysiological approach for sure. But to think that that's the final answer or the ultimate answer or the reductive sort of totalizing answer, that's the mistake. And that's what happens... Um, when capitalism becomes our metaphysics, right? In other words, when we think that everything has a certain market value and that the value of a thing is its market value, right? Everything is reducible to something like uh, what people are willing to uh, uh, pay for it and, and, and so on, right? Um, one way to think about this is to think in terms of value. I talk about the word value and the concept of value in the book quite a lot. Uh, and what's interesting is that when you have a polytheist perspective on existence, right, when you have a pluralistic perspective on existence, then values will be multiple. And this is actually how oral societies sort of experience value. If, if you trace back the, the sort of roots of the word value, value ties into things like fire, light and shining, right? Almost literally shining. When we see value in the world, we see something shining out to us, right? It's a call. It's a way in which the world glows and calls to us and says, look, this is important, right? Whether for good or bad, right? This is what the experience of value is. It's the experience of meaning. And in a pluralist sort of polytheist context, meaning is multiple, right? Like what's the importance of a thing? What's the value of it? What's the meaning of it? There'll be different answers depending on individual perspectives, but also depending on what matters to each of us, right? The way in which the world has reached out to each of us, the things that we are each part of, right? The world begins to shine in different ways, right? Value shines in different ways for us. But when everything has to be reducible to uh, market value, right? When everything has to be understood in terms of exchange, and how these exchanges sort of can occur, right? we are flattening the complexity and the diversity of value. And there's a, a pressure to do that, right? Think about sort of the, the contrast between the idea of someone being practical versus uh, someone being sort of romantic, right? Like, sure, like a, a, a poem has some sort of value, but it's sort of romantic to really focus on the value of it aside from what it can get you as an author, 
right? When you publish it, right? When you reach an audience, when they pay you for it, that's the value of it. To think beyond that is kind of unrealistic and romantic. We can do it, but it, it doesn't really mean very much, not as much as like the paycheck you get, right? That's sort of uh, what flattened value looks like. And this can even, sorry if I'm sort of dominating. I, I, I can No, this is your show. Go. I want to hear. <laughs> we, we can even think about this in, in terms of interpersonal relationships, right? Um, so, I mean, obviously you, you uh, 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 talk to a lot of people who are involved in sort of counseling, right? And, and sort of uh, 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 that aspect of it. And um, there's a certain way of speaking that has come from... Um, well, I actually think it, it comes from capitalism, but it was, it, it's been adopted by certain approaches to certain types of counseling. Certainly not, uh, 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 you know, I'm not aiming this at anyone on your channel or, or you or anything like that. Um, but it's become sort of a pop culture sort of uh, uh, tool. And that's more how I'm thinking about it in terms of this pop culture tool. So what am I thinking about? What I'm thinking about is the idea of relationships as investments. So you'll, you'll hear someone say, for example, when a relationship dies, whether it's a friendship or a romantic or whatever the case may be, well, I realized that I was investing more than they were. And, and you'll sometimes hear the advice that when thinking about relationships, we should think about sort of uh, how much you're investing and what you're getting out of it and so on and so forth. But this is a incredibly sort of flattened understanding of the nature and value of relationships. Very clearly, what we've done is we've reduced interpersonal relationships to the market model, right? What am I paying? What am I getting back? You know, I'll laugh at your jokes if you drive me around because I don't have a car, right? And, and sort of here's what I pay and here's what I get, right? And if you ask yourself sort of what is lost there, all kinds of things are lost. But at the most basic level, what's lost is connection, right? Is the idea that relationships actually have to do with sort of a intertwining, right? We become part of each other. We become in some sense unified, not entirely, in complex and pluralistic ways. Right? And that's sort of what relationship is, this intertwining. And it can be that we have unhealthy intertwinings and we have to sort of navigate that for sure without a doubt, right? But to think of it purely in terms of a market sort of process is to flatten out the actual experience of what it is to care about people and be connected to people and, and sort of the, the complex multiple realities of relationships. So we see the way in which uh, uh, these sort of uh, uh, monotheistic metaphysics as embodied within capitalism can come to dominate even the way we think about like our relationship to our loved ones. Okay, I'll, I'll pause for a moment. <laughs> now you're blowing my mind. <laughs> You're blowing my mind. I read this book, the first edition, which was a couple of years ago. Um, and there's a second edition. I'm assuming it happened because the first edition sold out. So congratulations. And the second edition, is there something different or new? Did you write an introduction or something for it that I've, that I've missed? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, uh, I had um, a good friend and a, a brilliant author um, write a foreword, write Sarah Leone. Um, she wrote a foreword for it. And then also I wrote a new introduction, sort of concept, putting in context uh, a lot of what's happened since the first publication, right? So since the first publication, there's been a lot, right? There's been COVID. There's been Lord knows a, a million things. So trying to, you know, put in context uh, sort of how these major important world events 
relate to what I'm talking about in the book. Um, and then, yeah, other than that, there's just sort of small changes throughout the book, you know, a few things to be tweaked here and there, but nothing sort of dramatic other than the new, uh, new forward, new introduction. And we also have to talk a little bit about this fabulous press, because if you, you should get me in touch with them so I can have more books that are on their press because they seem to be doing really great stuff. Yes. Yeah. So it's gods and radicals press. Uh, and they, they, uh, have a website as well. I had written for their website for a long time before I first published this book. And the, the book sort of came out of a lot of the, the sort of things I was doing on their website, right. Things I was thinking about and, and writing about. Um, but the idea is that it's, uh, you know, gods and radicals, it's sort of uh, a polytheist, right. Uh, it, it's definitely sort of has a pagan, uh, uh, perspective and then applying that perspective to, Contemporary challenges, right? Contemporary issues, um, you know, uh, uh, social issues, environmental issues, and and so on. Uh, and a lot of their books are are brilliant. I mean, all their books are brilliant, but a lot of them are are doing some really innovative and interesting things with how polytheism, paganism, and that kind of stuff can be applied to contemporary issues. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate how that how it really is so different, like fundamentally in different ways of thinking. And I think this is such an important point because a lot of the arguments that happen are all still happening within this monotheistic metaphysics, as you describe it, whether it's like, you know, science versus religion. Da, 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 da. It's still like all kind of in this like binary, <laughs> like, yeah, monotheist yeah. metaphysics. And I think it's really amazing even the attempt to try to get out of this um, and to look, like you said, the, at the universe is having like multiple, I had never even considered that idea of like multiple inceptions of the universe. Like it's not just like a big bang and then everything existed, which of course makes much more sense to me, <laughs> you know, like there's yeah. obviously like, yeah, different unfoldings and different things are like, um, when I think of there's this show, I think it's called Invasion, where they have the aliens coming, but like the aliens are this kind of like weird interdimensional creature. It's not just like looks like us, but small, you know, and shriveled. Yeah. You know, I appreciate that because like, why would it have the same kind of senses as us? Things like that. So like trying to get out of that, like. Yeah, this like narcissistic worldview. God looks like us, and, and yes, so do all yeah. the aliens and everything, everything else. That it was really just kind of childish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, right? And I mean, in the book, I try to look at both the the sort of biggest levels. Um, so you know, talking about things like the the nature and origin of the cosmos and you know, Big Bang type stuff, etc. But also sort of at at concrete social sort of issues but also bring it down to like the fundamentals of meaning and how we create meaning and what the nature of meaning is. Um, because you can see sort of in a very specific way, this polytheism of an oral society, if you think about the way in which they understand the meaning of words. So, so for example, uh, a lot of the place where you can see this, if you're like, all right, so what does the conflict between a rising literacy and the way it sort of allows us to think in certain ways, um, sort of meeting a uh, already present oral sort of culture, what does that conflict look like? And you see it in Plato, right? Plato's writing these dialogues about Socrates sort of walking around arguing with people. And, you know, for, for a long time, we thought that this was just about different sort of philosophical proposals and questions. But actually, when you pay very careful attention to the conversations going on, 
What's going on is that Socrates and Plato were some of the first people. There are a few others, but in, in the ancient Greek context, some of the first people to begin to really appreciate the power and the insights of this new literate way of thinking, right? The type of thing that writing makes possible for us. One of the main things that writing makes possible is abstract general thought, right? Uh, abstraction. And this is part of, you know, by the way, I should say right off the bat, I'm not like anti-writing, right? I'm, I'm an author and you see all the books <laughs> behind me, right? I'm a huge fan of writing. So the point of this is not, oh, we should never have developed writing. Let's go back. Right? Let, let's all uh, rejoin oral society. Um, yeah, that's certainly not the point. But as with all things, some stuff is lost, some stuff is gained, right, as, as we make changes. Uh, so Plato and Socrates were some of the first people to really be working through, although they probably didn't consciously realize what they were working through was the power that writing gives us, sort of the conceptual power that writing gives us. But they were sort of, they were working out the implications of this. So when you see Socrates in conversation with people, usually what's going on is that he's made a move that writing and literate thought allows. But the people he's talking to haven't made that move, right? They're not familiar with this sort of uh, uh, conceptual apparatus, with this way of thinking. So because of it, there's a disconnect. And the disconnect is between a literate society and an oral society. So to make this very concrete, Socrates almost always engages in the same type of process. He takes a thing, let's say courage, and he wants to know what courage is. So he goes to someone who claims to know what courage is, let's say a general. And he says, you're a great general. I've heard that you know what courage is. And the general says, of course I know what courage is. And Socrates says, all right, tell me, what is courage? And the same move happens almost every time. The person Socrates is talking to gives examples, usually examples from oral poetry. So they'll say, oh, courage is when Achilles on the field of battle fighting outside of Troy did this thing. Or courage is this other famous hero and when this hero did this thing. Right. And Socrates has to say, no, 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 I, I don't want examples. And when you look at the actual Greek, the, the Greek is, is torturous in the same way that the English is torturous. Socrates usually says, what I want is to know what courage is in itself, by itself. In itself, by itself. So if that phrase, you're just like, what the hell does that mean? The Greeks did the same thing, right? Socrates has invented this new phrase because there was no word for in general, right? There's no word for what is the definition of courage. The concept of a general definition doesn't exist, right? So what does this mean? Socrates is looking for the essence or the nature of courage, right? Something like courage is, you know, some general definition that can apply to every instance, every example. But within an oral society, that's not how we understand words, right? That's not how we understand the nature of, of courage or dogs or anything like that. The way we understand these things is in terms of concrete, real examples. So courage is this guy named Achilles whose history I know. I know all about his personal sort of uh, uh, story and his feelings and who he was connected to, right? This guy Achilles doing this thing. That is courage. And if you say, well, then how do I apply that to someone else? Right, you go, oh, well, there's this other example. Courage is also when this thing happens. And courage is also when this thing happens. Now, how does that give us something like a concrete meaning for a word? Well, the thing you should think about 
and I'm, I'm stealing this from sort of Wittgenstein, right? The philosopher of Wittgenstein. Uh, but the thing you should think about is a rope and how a rope is not created out of, let's say we have five feet of rope. You don't create five feet of rope by having five feet long threads and then wrapping them all together. Right? A rope is made out of many different threads of differing lengths and they're all sort of woven together, but there's no one thread that goes through the entire thing, right? This concept Wittgenstein talks about when talking about meaning and definition in terms of family resemblance. So what makes all courageous things courageous? Wittgenstein would say it's family resemblance, right? They share aspects, but there's no one aspect that runs through them all, right? There's not the one general characteristic that makes all courageous things courage. And the same thing goes for everything. There's no one thing that makes all dogs dogs. There's no one thing that makes all poetry poetry. There are family resemblances between concrete specific examples. This is both a very sort of dry point about definition and how we can have an idea of definition without abstraction, right? Without uh, universal general sort of this applies to all cases, right? But it's also a very concrete example of what reality is like when you are not coming at it from an abstract sort of general viewpoint, right? Trees are not all an example of one great treeness, one essence of treeness, one nature of treeness. No, they're multiple and diverse and increasingly diverse as they change and grow over time. And the thing that connects them all is like what connects a family, right? I'm very different from my great uh, grandmother, let's say, right? But there are connections, right? And, uh, uh, you know, future generations will be different and further back they'll be different. But there's connections that run through the entire thing that allows both for an ever increasing diversity and also groups, right? Family resemblance, right? Connections. I like that. It's beautiful. Oh, one other point, just quickly, uh, uh, about Plato and Socrates. You don't have to be quick. You're blowing my mind. I love <laughs> this. I could listen to you all day. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, one reason why the point I'm trying to make is, uh, especially within polytheist contexts, uh, sometimes fairly controversial and contentious, um, but also why it can be very confusing if you have a view of the history of, of religion and, 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 and let's say metaphysics and thought is that I just talked about Plato as embodying a literate sort of, you know, a worldview, a worldview that, that relies upon a lot of the elements that I would call uh, metaphysical monotheism, right? In other words, within my sort of categories, Plato and Platonism is monotheistic, right? It's metaphysically monotheistic, right? So certainly Socrates and Plato will talk about multiple gods and Platonism or what nowadays we'll call like middle Platonism or neo-Platonism or late Platonism, right? All the various forms of Platonism will have multiple gods and believe in the reality of multiple gods and have, you know, rituals for them and so on and so forth, right? So certainly the religious trappings of polytheism, of paganism are there, but metaphysically, and there, there are some people doing brilliant work arguing against this if you have like a careful reading of certain elements of Plato. And that's fair. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm talking about how it's been inherited historically, right? How it's been understood and influenced society. Metaphysically, Platonism as it has been historically and as it has influenced society 
is monotheist, right? The idea is that there are certain ultimate things, ultimate truths, ultimate mm. values. And these ultimates unify uh, both each other's existence and all uh, that exists in the world, right? Now, because of this, we end up with what I call late uh, paganism, right? Late paganism is the paganism that survives, that we find in uh, uh, Rome, let's say, we find in a lot of the Hellenistic period, right? It's still paganism, but it has been so heavily reworked and retrofitted based on new metaphysical philosophical insights, based on the work of Plato and Aristotle and, and their students, right? So heavily reworked that the inherent pluralistic metaphysics has been removed. Because if you look at the things that drove Plato and uh, 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 at least the depiction of Socrates we get in Plato crazy about ancient Greek religion, a lot of these things, I would argue, are important to an inherently polytheistic worldview, right? A, a, a polytheistic metaphysics. So what, what drove sort of Socrates and, and Plato crazy about Greek religion, for example? Well, the gods like slid around and change all the time. They appear to humans. They talk to humans. They have whims. They have desires. They might appear as one thing at one moment and another thing and another. Zeus, right, is famous for this, usually for the sake of like various uh, love affairs and or rapes and Lord knows what else, right? But, you know, Zeus will be a, a bull at one moment and a golden rainstorm at another and so on and so forth. This drove Plato nuts because the idea was, look, the gods have got to be perfect. And perfection can't change. If something is perfect, any change is a change towards imperfection, right? And the gods have to be perfect, so they have to be ethical, right? They have to be good, which means that they can't lie. So if they appear in an illusion, that's lying. That implies lack of perfection, lack of power. There's a whole history of these theological arguments about what perfect gods can and cannot do. And the problem is that the Greek gods aren't perfect. And I'm just going to lay it out. They aren't, right? In fact, my point is that this idea of perfection is a monotheist idea, right? It's an idea that would not have existed and does not exist in oral contexts. The idea of an abstract perfection. Because this is where at least Plato was incredibly consistent in thinking through the implications of this type of perfection, right? Whereas later versions of Platonism, let's say Christianity as a version of Platonism, which is, is an argument you can make, and it's certainly one I make, um, they give up on this basic insight, right? But Plato at least was honest enough and committed enough to say, look, if something is perfect, it can't change. If something can't change, it can't have desires for you. In other words, it can't give you laws, it can't punish you, it can't reward you, it can't listen to prayers, it can't answer prayers. Perfection doesn't do anything that you want a God to do, right? If you go to any church, you're going to want your God to be a certain way, and a perfect God can't do anything. It can't love you, or hate you, or be sad, or want good things for you. All the stuff that worshipers want, Perfect gods can't do. And Plato was at least consistent with this, where he said, look, you know, we can still talk about the gods, but these are lower things. The real perfect holy things, the real highest things, they don't change and they don't have desires for you and they don't punish you and so on and so forth. So you get all of this. Whereas to have a, a real sort of polytheistic view where you're not committed to this idea of an abstract perfection, 
right, is to have a view of the gods as messy, as changing, as having whims, as being hard to understand, right, as being what later will get called imperfect. But I would say at this level, we could just call it real. Because I think the deepest point, and this is me at my most snarky, let's say, the deepest point is that a perfect God or perfect thing, and I, I use this phrase fairly often when talking about it, is an impossible monster, right? This is something that we can say nothing about. What color is it? No color, right? Um, well, what does it want? Wants nothing, right? Well, you say it's perfectly good. What does that mean? Well, it's not good like any good you would know, right? It's not good like I can have a good cup of coffee. It's good in a sense that I can't say anything about. Okay, right? The more you push for details, the less content there is. The perfectly good, eternal, unchanging thing is an empty collection of words that mean nothing. There's no content there. Right? So on the one hand, right, we can have this sort of monotheistic metaphysics where it says, that says, look, the divine thing has to be perfect and these things aren't perfect. But on the other hand, you could have sort of, this is turning the oral view back on this view, you could say, I'd prefer my gods to be real, right? In other words, to have some sort of meaning, to have some context. Uh, I sometimes call this the problem of personality, right? We want something to have a personality, to have uh, 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 characteristics. <laughs> and we can't get any of that from perfection, right? So if we wanted to have content, so the the... I, I, at one point, I, I comment that I, I wish Socrates' interlocutors, the people that talked with Socrates, were a little bit smarter than they were. Because there are moments where like, he gets them in a corner and he wins this fight. And there are plenty of moments where a, a sharper polytheist would say, you know what, you're right. And that's because your idea of perfection is empty and meaningless. So there's that sort of move. I'll, I'll pause for a moment. <laughs> I love this. And it's making me think this is what we need more pagan philosophers and psychoanalysts. <laughs> because also it fits so well with psychoanalysis because in the unconscious, everything can coexist. Things can contradict, you know. It doesn't matter because it all exists in the unconscious. And of course it does. And of course it does. Why? Because it all exists in the cosmos too. <laughs> like, yes. like you can't, yeah. So like, I think it all fits together really well. And I'm actually feeling a feeling that I haven't felt in a really long time, but like inspired to write something about this. <laughs> so well, thank you, You should. Guys. You absolutely should. Like, mm, maybe we can write something together for the Fenris Wolf. I would love to, right? That, that, really that, that would be amazing. Yeah, that would definitely be fun. That'd be great. I yeah, I mean, as, as you know, uh, uh, in doing the kind of philosophy I do, I do a lot of um, 20th century existentialism phenomenology, but then I also do a lot of sort of uh, uh, postmodern stuff as well. And, you know, really important for all of that is, of course, Freud and Lacan, right? Uh, so, you know, I, I spend plenty of time reading and writing about Lacan and thinking about Lacan. Uh, I teach queer theory classes amongst my philosophy classes and obviously talking about Lacan and, and sort of where his thinking goes and other, uh, other thinkers such as like Judith Butler, et cetera, is, is really important. So I, I, I agree. And, and part of what inspired me originally in this project was noticing that a lot of the insights that 
types of postmodernist thinkers were having and existentialist thinkers were having of a certain type and, and phenomenological thinkers. A lot of their insights overlap with how I understood polytheism, which overlaps with what an oral society would think. So there, there definitely is meant to be uh, uh, overlap and resemblance. Absolutely. And I often think about like, you know, whenever I see like Orishas or different polytheistic gods, it's like, uh, it's so much richer and like, yeah, true to human experience. Like you can see yourself in these kinds of different aspects. And even like the Orishas have all different aspects to them, you know, and things like that. It's yeah. like things are so layered and multiple. And, you know, that's like, that's my kind of psychoanalysis where it's like everyone evolves in their life the way they develop because that's the way they develop. And there's no way that's like correct and wrong than one way or the other. It's like if someone's suffering, you know, and they want help to fix something, change something, alter something, adjust something so that they don't feel like they're suffering. Okay, we can help help work with that. But like, otherwise, you know, you shouldn't want to change anybody or like decide that something is pathological versus healthy, because if it's not bothering the person or they're enjoying it or that's the way they are, then like, that's the way they are and leave it, you know, so it also gets out of that kind of conundrum of like what's pathological and what's not you know yeah absolutely i mean so this is a dangerous move for me to make since i know uh both you and your audience are are you know experts very often in, in lacan and and his thinking but um what comes to mind a lot is the idea that there quote unquote is no sexual relationship right and i know that this can be interpreted in many ways so i'm not i'm not presuming sort of expertise in lacan uh, but part of what this points to is the sense in which every time we have a sexual relationship, we're inventing it, right? There, there's no preordained structure that is dictating how we end up relating to each other um, or even relating to ourselves, right, in that context. And there's a sense in which we are without essence when it comes to that subject, right? We have to invent and we're sort of condemned to invent, right, in every sort of uh, 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 way in, in regards to that. So, yeah, I, I think that this is um, this overlaps a lot with uh, some of my, my thinking in, in terms of polytheism. Right. Again, there are family resemblances, there are connections, but there is no uh, preordained way it should be. But there's also no natural way that's being sort of dictated to us that sort of is what we could choose to follow or should choose to follow. There's always an element of um, contingency, of accident, of, of sort of the, the real thing. Yeah, and I, that's, I'm even like that with my psychoanalytic theory, because like, that's fine if there's people who want to debate what someone meant, like what Lacan meant when he said this or that. But the fact is, with Lacan, he wrote very little compared to what he spoke. And even what he oh, spoke yeah. is like, recorded on different recorders and people's notes. And like, you know, It's all like put slapped together and then edited by one person who decided to edit it one certain way. So it's all up for debate in itself you know but I like to just say like what did you get out of it you know like what did you take that to mean because that to me is much more interesting that's the analyst in me like it doesn't matter yeah, what I yeah. really said or what Lacan really meant when he said something it matters what you took took from it or you took took it to mean that's what's interesting yes, yeah yeah and I mean that yeah that, that leads that's also the whole this polyistic view yeah 
Precisely, right? And it, it leads to this sort of very rich way of reading texts in general or, or engaging with anything, right? Um, but we find that in, you know, folks like Foucault and Derrida and so on and so forth, where it, it leads to this interest in the, the multiple meanings of a text and, and the openness of a text, that we can't keep the text closed. Um, and therefore, there, there's always different ways of engaging that will reveal something new. Right? The text is kind of perpetually self-unfolding. Um, this is how I think about the cosmos. Right? I, I'd mentioned I prefer the term cosmos to universe. Right? And it, on the one hand, it should be obvious why universe would be a dirty word for me. Right? Uni, right? Unified, <laughs> right? Universe is literally a unification of all verses, of all terms of all ways, right? We can think about verse in a few different ways, but it's the unification of these verses. Whereas cosmos, if you dig into the origin of the word, it's an ancient Greek term. And it comes from, in, in Homer, this term for weaving. And it is specifically mm -hmm. applied to beautifully woven hair of horses, right? The idea mm -hmm. that you would weave the mane of a horse. And then it comes to eventually mean woven hair in men and women, right? Beautifully woven hair. Right? But there's this image of the weaving together of multiple things that's not a domination or reduction of them. It's not a totalization of them. And that's the cosmos, right? The cosmos is woven in and out of itself, right? And is this increasingly complex, increasingly sort of pluralistic unfolding, if you picture just sort of a perpetually unfolding richness, right? That's how I think about the cosmos. Because this is what we get from uh, uh, pagan myth, too. Like, think about, you know, obviously I, I draw on a lot of Greek stuff because we have it written by societies that still took it seriously rather than recorded by, you know, people who are in the society to convert them, right, or, or to dominate them. So we have insiders writing uh, this stuff down. But if you think about like Hesiod, the Hesiod story is that the universe comes out of the bodies of gods having sex, right? And, and having children and giving birth. And each generation is more complex than the next and messier, right? Complex in good and bad ways, right? But each time, right, there's a new beginning and a new complexity and new things come to appearance, and if you follow that through, it keeps going, right? It's not just like, oh, and then there was Zeus and Zeus had kids and that's the end of the story, right? The world continually unfolds in that complexity, right? Giving birth to new things, to AI and so on and so forth, right? New things come to be in various and complex ways. Yeah, that's really great. I'm really into this, Cadmus. I'm going to reread your book now. <laughs> it's really good I remember I loved it the first time and now I'm getting like I'm having insight in inspirational poppings everywhere yeah and we'll, we'll have to talk about putting <laughs> putting something together for uh for for families yeah because it's so good it's so important and I feel like this is such a fundamental thing also like this idea that people have that like I will find the thing that will like fix all of my problems or like solve everything for me. And like that can't, it doesn't exist. So that is also yeah. this kind of monotheistic metaphysics that like something is it, you know, something is it yeah. that will solve everything or make me feel better or whatever it is that people imagine. And it, it's like, yeah, and I mean, no, go ahead. 
No, it's just like if I could get people like to like understand that that's never gonna happen, like that my job is done. Like, stop trying to find the thing because it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. And I mean, obviously, it's in pop culture. Everyone's looking for their like, you know, purpose and meaning. Uh, but it's also in occultism and it's in religion, right? If you find the right relationship to the right God, suddenly everything will be fine. Or if you find your fate, your destiny, your true will, your one nature, right? All of these ways of trying to make us less than we are, right? Trying to make us less rich, less complicated than we are. Because, you know, richness and complication is messy, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also so much fuller, right? It's so much more fruitful than to be like, ah, I've uncovered my one true will. And now all of my life and my relationship to the whole universe makes sense. Now, I'm a much messier person than that, right? Much more complicated. Um, so yes, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, it's a really important point, right? There's, there's not the one path, the one thing, the one God, the one will, the one soul, right? That, that will unify us, that will make it all make sense. Yeah, or the one product. If I could just buy yeah. that car or get that girl or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because think about like why... Why does something like capitalism, for example, appeal so much? Part of the reason is that it simplifies in a, a fundamental way, right? Like I can look at my bank account, I can look at my net worth, I can look at my taxes and know exactly what I'm worth, right? I can look at my paycheck, my Not salary. Not much. Right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Not, not I was a thinking whole lot, when you were but... talking about that. Well, writing, occult writing, and academic writing doesn't really pay that much. So I guess yeah, our yeah, ideas precisely. are worthless. <laughs> but I mean, at least I would know my place, right? At least I would know uh, 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 sort of where I stand and what I could do to try to improve my standing. And but it's not; it's nowhere near that simple. And. And also to actually get the worth in that way, like the monetary way, we would have to like change who we are and like not be thinking about like pagan, pagan philosophy and psychoanalysis. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> We'd have to be like writing, you know, detective stories or something, which. <laughs> which, which I do from time to time, but you know, but yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly would never have gone into academia to be a professor right? uh, uh, and, and to study philosophy of all things. Yeah, not not the path to increase your value if you're thinking in terms of capitalism. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, same. But anyway, the, all my favorite people are, yeah, apparently worthless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah. All the best people have, have low market value. <laughs> At least our relationships are real connections and we're not uh, just exchanging goods. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because notice, you know, again, if you think about what abstraction does to us, it distances us from things. Right. Um, and th this is where sort of thinking about the world comes into play. Right. I call it true to the earth. And this is a, uh, a drawn from a, a quotation from Nietzsche. But in Nietzsche, right, in, in this quotation, he says, you know, I, I beg of you, please, this is a paraphrase, but please remain true to the earth. Right. Rather than worshiping, I think the phrase he uses is the entrails of the infinite or something like that. Right. So the idea that, you know, Stay close and true to the things that are around you, the things that are concrete, the things that are real. Um, so, yeah, we end up being distanced. And that's what happens in that, that sort of element with our relationships. The reason why thinking in terms of investment 
comes up so often when relationships are falling apart is because it's painful, right? It hurts. We're literally, if, if you take literally my, my uh, speak, uh, my talk of us being interwoven and interconnected, when relationships end, we're losing parts of ourselves. We're ripping parts of ourselves off. It's painful. So it can help to try to numb ourselves, to be like, oh, well, this is just breach of contract, right? This is just, you know, just a, business. A, a failure of investment. <laughs> what was that? It's just yeah, business. It's, Nothing personal. It's just business, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, that doesn't heal the pain, right? But it can give us enough distance, right? So it makes sense why that would be influential when we need distance. But you also see how that's incredibly malforming, right? It's a distortion of human experience because we don't have distance, right? We're enmeshed in the world. We're enmeshed in each other, right? A, a phrase I, I use in the book a lot and I'm a little obsessed with is that we're always interpenetrating and interpenetrated, right? We're always sort of messily mixing into things. We overlap and, 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 and we sort of interweave. And that's messy and complicated and it's unavoidable. But if you can think of things in terms of abstraction, you can be like, well, what am I ultimately? I am, let's say, my mind or my soul. And it is separate from this coffee cup. And therefore, we've got this way of organizing the entire universe into discrete things. And that's an illusion. Right? I mean, we flow in and out of the entirety, right? It's all sort of mixed together and interwoven. Absolutely. Well, I love this conversation, Cadmus. <laughs> yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I'm so glad you came. You'll have to come back again soon. Oh, yes. Yeah. Anytime. Let me know. I I, uh, I love it. This has been a lot of fun. And I miss you. <laughs> I miss you, too. And you have to come visit now. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm committed now. I'm definitely coming uh, one way or another. <laughs> a European trip is in order. Nice. I love it. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap up that we didn't get to? Anything you're working on now or anything else? coming up? Yeah. So I'm actually, uh, so I've recently published a, a paper in Conjure Codex 5, which is on, this is very specific, so it may appeal to some folks, but not others, but it's on ancient conceptions of necromancy and what it teaches us for sort of contemporary views of our relationship with, let's say, death and the underworld. Um, so, I mean, the basic argument is that uh, necromancy always involved, you know, the Greek term is catabasis, right? An actual going down, right? So you can't like call forth a ghost, right? You actually have to enter into the underworld in some way. Um, and then it's an argument that this is a way to think about a lot of contemporary sort of practices relating to death in the underworld, right? That um, we're always sort of crossing over that boundary, that permeable boundary between life and death. So there's that. Uh, but the other thing that I've been up to is I'm putting together, it, it's not done yet, otherwise I'd give you a reference, but I'm putting together a website uh, where I can gather together classes I've taught. Because for years now, I've taught for the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival pretty much every, every year, yeah. Uh, I also just finished um, giving a keynote address at the Astromagia Conference, which is a conference on astrological magic. And I've been uh, giving, I, I've given a keynote address there every year they've existed. I think this was year three or four. Uh, so I want to gather together all of these resources and, and make them available to folks. So I will have a website eventually with all my classes sort of uh, available for, for purchase, most of them. Um, but it's not done yet. That, that's a work in progress. 
And then there are a few things I'm writing, but those are projects for the future. When it's ready, come back and we'll promote your website. Yeah, that'd be great. I definitely will. Wonderful. Thank you, Camus, for being here. It was so much fun talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much, Vanessa. This has been wonderful. And we'll keep in touch about writing and visiting. Yes, yeah, about writing a piece for for Fenris and, yeah, for visiting and and meeting your your puppy. (laughs) And also, Carl made me make sure to say he sends his love. I send my love as well, definitely. All right, and Linnea loves you too because she loves everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Having not met her yet, but yeah, the nice thing it about doesn't matter you know, if you want to pet her, all. she loves you. <laughs> <laughs> She's super cute. <laughs> yes, yeah, the pictures are amazing. All right, bye, Cadmus. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Cadmus Herschel. For more, order his book, True to the Earth, Pagan Political Theology, from Gods and Radicals Press. And check out Gods and Radicals' website at abeautifulresistance.org. Also find Cadmus's work in Omega Golem, a manual for all times and spaces, as well as The Fenris Wolf, Volumes 8, 10 and 11. You can also listen to a lecture given by Pat Cadmus at our second Psychoanalysis Art in the Occult Conference, which was held in 2019 in Murano, Italy. It's episode number 32 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious. You can find more about Carl at his website, carlabrahamson.com, and you can follow him on social media at carl.abrahamson at Instagram and carlabrahamson at TikTok and C.A. Abrahamson at Twitter. You can also follow me at social media at Rawson underscore, that's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore, at Instagram and Twitter, as well as Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23 at TikTok. You can find Cadmus on social media at Cadmus underscore true to the earth at Instagram and star and system at Twitter, as well as Cadmus Herschel at Facebook. And now, a clip from the album At Stockholm by Psychic TV and White Stains, now available at Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page. Visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. Power is often
of monasteries and churches, singing of choirs and open orgasms, liquids on the back of my hand, rubbing my cheek, down my gland, working alone in the naked land, angels of breath, wings of monasteries, Catholic sex. And you spoke from so far away.
always focused on the suffering. When we're happy, we sleep and slumber. Raw in pain, we feel hopeless and dead. I dreamed of a new kind of spider, mostly small babies, one adult with a yellow body. When you step on them hard, nothing happens. They don't squash and die. They always threaten, they may bite and poison, but they never do. It's just another possibility. Keeps us on edge. Keeps us on edge. Perhaps that's it. All those marvelous words composed as we wake or drift to sleep. Drift to sleep. Drift to sleep. Drift to sleep. Or drift to sleep. To sleep. To sleep. All those words are spiders. Spiders. Teasing us. Teasing us. So close. So close. Is this the white pen 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 white p